morning and welcome to the Island Faces. I am Sir Buckley here to guide you through another part, part six of A Feast of Crows. Yes, welcome back. This episode is coming to you slightly later this week. I had some time off for a couple of days to celebrate our anniversary, so thank you for being patient and, like I say, welcome back. In that spirit, I'll try not to delay too long here. I'm coming to you from a cloudy, well, it's actually rainy now, England, so the energy... Well, don't worry, I'll try and keep it up. I'll try and raise it to that sunny level because I want to get through this one quickly so we can work on the next one. You might have to wait too long here. We don't want to back up. All I will do before we get going here is a quick reminder just to check back to last week with Radio Restros on their live stream where I was lucky enough to guest on and talk about the Winter Winter Prologue. But I discussed that last time, so I'm sure you'll remember. And of course, a thank you, as always, to wonderful patrons and to all of you listening out there. Again, thank you for being patient with me this week. With that said, I'm going to get going because we have a long old chapter or a bunch of chapters to get going with today. Our usual four, of course, but today we have Aaron slash the Drowned Man, so Aaron 2, I guess, Brienne 4, Ariane 1 slash the Queenmaker, and Aya 2. So I think you can tell just from those titles, there's quite a lot to cover today, some big, important plot points. And you'll also notice it is our one day without a Cersei chapter. Last week we didn't have a Brienne, which is also a bit of a rarity, but more for today. No Cersei also means no King's Landing, because we don't have a Jaime either, so that's another rarity. And it occurred to me when I noticed that it's an even bigger setting than we might remember for this book, King's Landing I'm talking about. We visit so many different places and have so much time spent in the Riverlands or out on the road, it can be easy to forget how much we actually get in the city and the capital. For those wondering, I did check, we have 13 chapters placed in King's Landing, with Jamie leaving halfway through one of those, to be fair, compared to Tenet in the Riverlands, slash the Upper Crownlands, or anything past Dusk and Dale, really. So you can at least make an argument what the primary setting is, but King's Landing seems to pivot. I say Riverlands personally, because we get more POVs there, but uh, that's maybe a personal touch. So today our focus is all away from King's Landing, obviously, all on the further reaches of the geography. And our big story hinges on the Iron Islands and Dawn plots. That is not to downplay our Brienne chapter, or Aya indeed. It's just a rare outing, so we should appreciate that as she says goodbye to herself and hello to the story of the Faceless Men. But the bulk of the chat has to be on the two mirrored plots of Dawn and the Iron Islands. And we may as well talk about that now as a collective before getting into the specific chapters. Because again, the length at which these two plots are mirrored astounds me. I'm really surprised it's not talked about more often in the fandom, to be honest. In just one episode of The Isle of Faces and within two chapters of the same book, we see the entire direction of both the Iron Islands and Dawn change completely. Certainly, for our POV characters, their life paths are forever different and it's due to the incredibly similar plot points of naming a ruler. One is done in the official, out in the open, another is a secret plan. One fails, and depending on your viewpoint, so does the other. Either way, this is the real inciting incident for both of these groups, and it changes the lives of Aeron, Euron, Victarion, Asher, Ariane, Marcella, Ariane's group of friends, and, most definitively, Eris Ogart. Not to mention the citizens of the Iron Islands, and perhaps those of Dawn as well, maybe going forward into the future. Because that's where the differences leak in. The Iron Islands change is immediate and obvious, something the Ironborn people have been clamouring for, and is exactly what gets Euron elected, that need for change. In Dawn, Marcella's kidnapping and near crowning is kept mostly behind closed doors in the classic style of Dornish plots, but does accelerate matters entirely. Plans 20 years old are ruined or changed, and new ones have to be grown quickly as Duran pivots and adds Ariane into his fold, even if that comes later in the book for us. 
For the Iron Islands, we can say the change in direction is much more definite. Duran always had plots of some sort, but no one predicted the complete 180 that Euron would introduce. As mentioned last week, is his promise of something new, of a break in the mediocrity, as well as conquest and plunder, that gets the Ironborn on side. Consider their history, both extended and recent. They've always been confined to these pokey, ugly islands. They've always been the losers forced to steal and then run away. Not so long ago, they rose up and were smoked down again on their own home court. Even more recently, they tried the same thing again, and in an oddly worse way, that campaign has petered out to a whimper rather than a bang. Remember, the majority of the Ironborn have had a rough time of it. Asher leads hers to victory, there's some good reaving on the stony shore, but a bunch either had to abandon or die at Winterfell thanks to Fionn, while even more suffered a fate worse than death at Moat Caelin and on the neck. Flash forward to Fionn's chapter where he sees what the Cranachmen have done to them. I'm thinking of the Ralph Kenning description specifically. And we see what the Ironborn have really put up with late. Which means that collectively they are looking for one or two things at this King's Moot. The chance for final glory or to cut the losses and get back to normal. Asher very nearly brings them onto side of cutting losses. But Euron's potential glory of dragons, magic horns and above all earning a little respect wins over the crowd. Hence, a new Ironborn Age begins. Not reaving, but conquesting. Not sailing to the east for raids, but retrieval. Not content with instant gratification, but of a long, intricate plan to improve their holding in the world. And at the head of it all, a madman. I will again, as I did last week, point you to Paul Quentin and many others for incredible theories of what Euron could become or could do in wins and beyond, as well as what he represents as an antagonist. Maybe the antagonist, at least in human form. Many will point to him as the ultimate outside-the-lines man, one who might awaken beasts and toy of gods, and genuinely might be about to change the face of the world. I wouldn't dare say I have any such skills with theory crafting, and it's difficult to know where to fit such thoughts in in this kind of podcast. But we'll see how we go, and we'll mention them, I'm sure, here and there. And most likely, the majority of that talk will come in our final Ironborn chapter a bit later on. Suffice to say, this is a truly important moment when a man as mad, as evil, and as apparently competent as Euron is finally given controls. One thing throwing it to Joffrey, he doesn't know what to do with it, but now Euron is the king. And yes, we will have just one Ironborn chapter after this in Feast. It's the same for Dawn, which is so strange to consider if we're saying this is the hinge, yet we only get one more chapter for each plot. Although both are supplemented with preview chapters of Wind, so we are a bit lucky there. Finally, before we get on with our task here today, the twining of these two plots has one final point, one that stretches back to our prologue, in that it is about something that doesn't actually feature in this book at all. Dragons. The decisions made here today push both of the factions into the arms and dreams of dragons. Now, we assume dragons are coming anyway, and Dawn especially was already pushing towards them in a different form with Quentin, but that is all the much more accelerated now. Regardless, dragons are for the future. Today, we remain with their human form. As we've discussed already in this book with talk of Jamie and Kristen Cole, today is about the creation of monarchs. One failure and one success. Let's get going, shall we? Let's begin with Aeron 2 slash The Drowned Man. It should be noted that out of all of Dance and Feast, we only ever get back-to-back Ironborn chapters once, and that's right here, and we never get it at all for the Dornish. So, although our scheduling has broken them up here on the podcast, let's remember this comes right off the back of Victarion 1 slash the Iron Captain, so the momentum is already well established here. We know how important this coming moment is, we're leaping right into it. We also know Aeron is already on his back foot. He's supposed to basically be hosting this King's move. It's his idea. He called the people and he already got chased out of the tent as soon as Euron appeared in that previous chapter. 
So that gives some hints as to the real relationship between these two brothers as Aaron has just seen his abuser walk in the door and it's obviously a traumatic moment for him. But for us, in our moment, it shows he's already lost a bit of control and things aren't going as planned. By chapter's end, he's going to feel even worse about that and I wonder if he'll reflect on the possibility that his Kingsmoot idea, instead of opening the door for Victorion to challenge, actually swept Euron on in. If Euron had just made his claim as usual, we can assume Asher would have challenged with swords if there was no Kingsmoot, I mean. If Victorion had then also gotten involved, it could have been a bloodbath that Euron could have easily lost. The caveat is that Victorion probably doesn't get involved and stays at Moat Kaelin or actually comes and swears to Euron's side because he believes that's what he's supposed to do. But if he doesn't, or even better if he joins with Asher, it's over, they win. It's possible Asher would have won just with Aeron's support, but of course, Aeron's foolish views on the woman, as he refers to her, would have restricted that. So that's our first of many, many alas alarms we'll see in this chapter. Make sure you're noting that down. I think one of the biggest notes we can take away from this whole Euron saga in this book is the inability of the other Greyjoys to unite against a common enemy, although not so much Asha, she at least tried. Too many personal grudges or focuses on the self, attachment to what has always been, that's just the ironborn way, isn't it? And we can extrapolate that out to the series at large and how humanity will or already is acting against the threat of the others. Again, looking at the larger impact of Euron as a character is his destruction of faith and hope and of rules. He destroys them all. He does things people are not supposed to do. You aren't supposed to be able to go to Valeria. That's a rule everyone obeys. Horns aren't supposed to burn out lungs. Euron isn't supposed to sit the sea stone chair because he is ungodly. He isn't supposed to win. This dies so deeply down into Aaron's soul because a lot of his iron grip on his faith has been summoned to deal with the pains inflicted by Euron in his childhood. He needs that faith now. Here comes an older brother who breaks the rules of brotherhood and of human decency and does things that you're not supposed to do. So Aaron, he has to fight back about that and there's only one way he knows how. It's his faith. It's that, it's the shield that he's going to use. And no one is as infested in their faith as Aaron. The drowned god will protect him. Euron won't win, etc, etc. That is a fact in Aaron's mind. And Euron, well, he's going to come in and steal all that away. He will win. An ungodly man will sit the seed stone chair. He will lead the Ironborn down a road they've never been before. And the Drowned God won't protect Aaron, as we know from the Forsaken chapter. And if you want some extra thoughts on that, again, I point you towards not only Paul Quentin, but Brendan Beefish as well, and not a cast. I know they've been focusing on the Forsaken in some of their Patreon episodes recently. I encourage you, again, I know you already are, but I encourage you to go and amaze yourself with their thoughts. But this is what we open with here. Aaron being completely taken aback by Euron's presence and the worry of what he could do. So Aaron is really wrapping himself up in his faith for protection. He heads into the sea. He concentrates on the persona of damp hair instead of Aaron to protect against Euron. And in amongst it is the reference to the rusted iron hinge that we'll also return to at the end of the chapter. But here's our first quote, a bit different to that one. Slowly he climbed, listening to the waves. The sea is never weary. I must be as tireless. So that's Aaron kind of powering up for this coming battle. This is where he's taking his strength. He needs to go in the sea like a video game. He's got to soak up all his um, his mana or his HP or whatever you like. And now he's ready to face the big baddie. He climbs up the hill to Naga's bones. He wants to be there first. That's important. And on the way we get the larger backstory of Naga and the Grey King. And the glory of the old days. Basically the backbone of his religion and the history of the Ironborn. So that's some more faith immersion. We again build on the hugeness of this moment that we're about to see. Everything feels very monumental, but I do enjoy that the Ironborn's own story also includes how their glorious king and wondrous sea dragon lost. The fire went out, everything was stolen, 
and they were only left with bones. What an ending to build your culture around, and isn't that the ironborn all over, just being left with the bare bones, the bare minimum, the scraps, and no one likes to point that out, I <laughs> seem to notice. But also worth noting that we can, as well, see, even historically, the ironborn link success with the rule of dragons, so that's setting up the ending of this chapter as well. So Aaron was there all night, powering up. He's got his old bones of history, he can still feel the strength of the sea, he has his prayer, he's ready for the big game. Here's another quote along similar lines. Even here, he could hear the ceaseless rumble of the waves and feel the power of the god who looked below the waters. Aaron went to his knees. So the moment, it really does feel very religious. The atmosphere is set as quite grand and, again, important as the people gather, the sea is loud, all these banners start coming and it's a collection of the Ironborn people. This is a culturally significant moment and George does a great job of creating that for us, of course. As Aaron looks around those gathering, both great and small, we see he and Victorion have gone for the optics angle. Victorion's in his cool armour that we saw last week. He has his Kraken sponsoring all over him, basically. And Aaron knows that looking like a king, an Ironborn king specifically, is important. Remember how Victorion wearing this armour as a captain signifies braveness to the Ironborn. And it links into how Victorion is going to be offering more of the same like we discussed earlier on. He is a walking picture of what has come before, basically. He's Mr. Ironborn, isn't he? Asha will do similar when she takes out her dirk, but the fact she's a woman will work against her in this regard and others. Euron, he kind of toes the line. He doesn't exactly look like an ironborn as Victorian does, but just enough, while also looking different enough to keep up the interest. We'll be seeing that over and over as the chapter goes. Asha offering one aspect, Victorian another, but Euron having just enough of both to squeeze into the lead. He even uses that fact as part of his speech later on. With everyone finally gathered, Aeron makes his introduction and includes a nod to Balon, who was supposedly taken by the Storm God. It really doesn't help that Aeron insists on blaming the enemy of his religion for Balon's death instead of just looking at Euron. This is another instance of their inability to unite against him. Asher is strong enough to accuse, but Aeron and Victorion refuse, giving Euron the upper hand. Balon the brave, Balon the blessed, Balon twice crowned, who won us back our freedoms and our god. What bollocks, really. We can see exactly what Aaron is full of here, can't we? What freedoms did Balon ever win them back? In regard to their god, he won merely because his father Quellon died and Balon changed directions in terms of letting the Seven on the island. He didn't fight anyone for it, he just inherited. And then he lost a war and he was on his way to losing a second. He set the Ironborn back, if anything. Robert destroyed them, and he only lucked out in everyone being too busy fighting themselves to avoid that happening again the second time. Twice crowned, that sounds impressive until you realise you should only really need to be crowned once if you know what you're doing. That's not actually a very good title. Regardless, Aaron moves on and he asks the all-important question of who wants to be king, and the political dance begins here with no one wanting to make the first move. But you can't leave it too late. You've got to really read the crowd. Momentum is important, etc, etc. It's all those things that we've seen... You know, it's like a school dance or something like that. You have to be very careful with your timing. And it's quite fun to watch them tiptoe around each other here. I think actually the best equation is a bunch of primary school children being shown the open toy box. No one wants to make the first move in case you make the wrong choice. What can we get out of this? How do we actually maximise this toy chest that's uh, appeared in front of us? And the big guns, they know they have to wait to make the biggest splash. So we get the lesser lords all having a crack first because why not? If you are willing to risk a little embarrassment and spare a few ri riches to share around, there's an outside chance you can win the big prize. Probably not, but people have convinced themselves of a lot more with a lot less reasoning. And as we discussed previously, these men have been sworn to the Krakens their entire lives. So why wouldn't you risk the chance of being the ruler 
just once. The three mini fish we get are interesting in terms of what they are offering. We'll go through them in a second, but we basically get claims based on promises of prosperity, promises of strength, and promises of history, all with a little bit of bribing going on. And I really like that aspect of the King's move. I find it very funny that we can have all this pomp and circumstance about being a religious place and about leadership and where we're going as a people, but really it comes down to who can offer the best stuff. And it's so very ironborn hollow as anything. First up is Gilbert Farwind, promising a golden land across the Sunset Sea. It's pretty interesting to actually meet a Farwind after all this quirky stuff we've heard about them, and you have to wonder how right he is about this Wonderland. Is it actually there? Well, I firstly think we'll never find out in this series, but I'm guessing there is some undiscovered land out there, even if it's not everything Gilbert is claiming. But Ironborn Prejudice kicks in straight away, first of Aeron and then of the crowd, especially when it turns out his bribes slash offerings are rubbish. Note that Gilbert is suggesting that they take all their ships and sail west, and it's dismissed entirely, that's ludicrous of course, despite that actually essentially being what happens later on with Euron. Okay, yes, they, they use the boomerang, but that is what Euron does. So poor Gilbert has to walk back down the hill when no one joins his shout. Ugh. So perhaps there is a reason not to try your luck, because it is pretty damn embarrassing. Next up is Asher's future husband, Eric Ironmaker, the one with a hammer named Formore. Yeah, don't think you can sneak those pastors there, George. We know what you're up to. Four more and a hammer. Okay. He basically just promises strength and sons, and his offerings are slightly nicer than Gilbert. Here's a quote. A few captains snatched up the choicest items and added their voices to the swelling chant. So it's interesting how their culture is so obsessed with the iron price and taking stuff off of corpses, but the rule is apparently relaxed for this one occasion. I guess they enjoyed their chance while they get it. Anyway, that's Eric Ironmaker, okay, you're, you're fine. But I declare this chapter saved because Asher appears again, making everything way more interesting than it was before. She is not content with waiting and seeing how things go, and she wants to take a more direct approach in dispelling her rivals. In this case, it's asking Eric to stand up, because he's not only old, but he's quite a large guy, and it's not as easy as it should be. It's a brilliant strategy from Asher because it's not aggressive, it's a reasonable request, yet she exposes that these promises of strength are, well, just that, promises, and there's no reality in them. Words of wind, you could say. And as she often does, she begins with saying she'll support him if he can. she can do it. She basically lays, puts her money where her mouth is. Asher is that kind of woman, and I think that earns her a lot of respect. And her plan works, Eric cannot stand up, and we can scratch him off the list. Last on this list of pre-season games is Dunstan Drum, although Aaron ever only refers to him as The Drum, which is a cool name. And the best thing about him, aside from the name, is that he comes in carrying the first of two Valerian steel swords we'll see in this chapter. This one is Red Rain. Cool name, cool sword, even if we don't really have much of a backstory on it, unfortunately. We spoke about some lords wanting to get out from under the Kraken, and Dunstan Drum leads that camp. He notes it was Targaryens who made the Greyjoys kings, no one else. He wants change, and he makes a damn good point about the other islands being better than Pike, better suited for ruling. He keeps on with the history vibe, but in the end it's too inward-facing, too self-interested. No one cares about ancient victories. These, these are people that don't learn from their past. Besides, his gifts are shit, so he has no chance. Now we finally get to the main event, although note that Victarion still needs Aeron to literally tell him to move instead of thinking for himself. But it's his go now. He starts off by getting blessed by Aeron, and that's a clever move. Get the religious endorsement, that'll win you a lot of votes. None of the others, four of that, but Victarion's actual push relies again on strength and military might. Unlike the drum, all of his examples come from recent victories. He actually has a pretty strong resume in that regard, 
and there's finally some gold and gems on the floor to pick up. So we have a real candidate, finally. And let me, I have one quote to pretty much sum up Victorian's uh, campaign. All you'll get from me is more of what you got from Balon. That's all I have to say. Hmm. Yeah, Victorian ain't one for speeches. A bit like Steve Martin in The Simpsons. You can tell he'd rather just get this over with. What he's offering is strength, yes, okay, but also continuation or continuity. Things will just keep going the same. And for me, that's a huge plus. A lot of people like continuity, although I think Victorian splits some of his own vote by not coming down steadfast on one side or the other of the Northern issue and what they're going to do about that. Later, Euron acts like it's confirmed that Victorian will continue the war, which we know he would definitely lose, but he never actually states that. He says a Kraken does not release or it grasps, does that mean he'll push forward of conquest? Where he's happy with what they gained? It's quite unclear. Anyway, that's the end of Victorian's short speech, and now we get to the good stuff. Asha comes forward, or the dreaded woman, as Aaron calls her. And again, she's direct in bringing her rival down. She calls it her queen moot again. She suggests that Victorian wore armour to protect himself from her, that he needs his toes to count. Yeah, she might be right in that regard. All stuff a crowd like this is going to appreciate. I like... They like Asher's quick uh, rowdy jokes, and she's going to let off one after the other here. She's smart enough to establish with the crowd that order of inheritance is important before establishing that she comes both before Euron and Victarion. She's got that down. And obviously, yes, her gender comes up, and you get the sense that Asher has had her defences prepared for that line of questioning. Well, she's been doing it her whole life, hasn't she? So she's quite ready for that. She uses humour, she directs them to her fighting skill, she points out how ironborn she is, despite, quote marks, your, her gender. It's a shame she has to clarify such when she's clearly the best of them, but we can't deny she is good at it. We also get our second Valerian Steel Sword of the Day when Asher presents her champions. Two we've met in Karl and Triss, but the third is Harris Harlaw, who wields Nightfall, which is another cool name. Especially if you imagine a K got lost somewhere along the line, it's spelled with an N. But a Nightfall with a K, that'd be just as good. Interesting in the history of Nightfall is the Harlaws somehow got it from House Greyjoy, which I imagine must have really wound them up throughout history, but luckily Asha isn't foolish enough to get bogged down by that. But what is Asha offering? Well, she first reminds them all what brave Balon actually won them. Despair and loss and not much else. It's important to highlight that fact before offering an alternative, or she'll immediately drown in male pride. She then goes on to point out what Balon should have realised on day one, and what we spoke about a lot at the time. How utterly, utterly stupid this northern war is. Here's a big quote for you. We have taken Moat Kaelin, Deepwood Mott, Torren Square, even Winterfell. What do we have to show for it? She beckoned, and her black windmen pressed forward, chests of oak and iron on their shoulders. I give you the wealth of the stony shore, Asher said as the first was upended. An avalanche of pebbles clattered forth, cascading down the steps, pebbles grey and black and white, worn smooth by the sea. Asher points out how this war basically went as well as it possibly could have done. They lucked out to 100%. They took Winterfell. Winterfell, of all places in the world, the most like untakeable place basically and it still has got them nothing this was not a war that should have been started it was based purely on hubris rather than logic and has cost all of them and to really hammer the point home she offers the treasures of the of the war as we hear in that quote it's a damn confident move by asher she's essentially mocking the king's move by going out of her way to prove a point and it's wonderfully done she's a hundred percent correct unfortunately her audience are just a little too dumb to grasp that well-made point. They're busy wondering where the hell their gold gifts are. Such is the stupidity of the Ironborn, unfortunately. But brilliantly, she goes straight into what she is offering. And though the piece is the main title, it doesn't include a complete loss of everything they fought for. 
everything they gave up is worth something under Asher. They will have gained the Stony Shore and Sea Dragon Point and maybe some Northmen as allies. We talked last week about the reality of such a prospect, or at least of the longevity of it, but either way, this would be the greatest expansion of Ironborn territory in centuries. It's not complete surrender either, like we said, she still wants to resist the Iron Throne, she's not just rolling over. I think this is the very best option the Ironborn are presented with, especially when she compares it to Victorian's same old defeat ploy. In a moment, we'll see the crowd seems pretty split, but I think Asher would have won out eventually, and just imagine the different direction her people would have gone. They don't become saints, of course, but it is so much better than the alternative. So damn you, Victorian, for not teaming up. This might be our biggest last alarm of the day, but like I say, there's going to be plenty vying for that title. Yet Tristan of Botley was shouting for her, with many Harlors, some good brothers, red-faced Lord Merlin, more men than the priest would ever have believed, for a woman. And I include that quote, just because I enjoy Aaron being so knocked off his perch by Asher actually getting this much support, and we really do get drawn into the rushing atmosphere, it's almost enough to make you forget about Euron. Like I say, it seems 50-50, and I would have given the edge to Asher, but it also seems like it's all about to go wrong, everyone's going to start fighting in a minute, and Ironborn being Ironborn, they'll consume themselves until something completely different comes along in the form of a horn. Yes, Euron's hornblower, he splits the, the air apart with this massive noise that they don't know what to make of, and I'll read you a part of the quote here. And now the glyphs were burning brightly, every line and letter shimmering of white fire. On and on and on the sound went, echoing amongst the howling hills behind him and across the waters of Naga's Cradle to ring against the mountains of Great Wick. On and on and on until it filled the whole wet world. Yeah, good job, George. It definitely looks the part, definitely sounds the part as well. If this is a production in the same way Melisandre's Lightbringer ceremony on Dragonstone was, the value is way higher and more convincing. Don't forget there's blistering lips and such that we're going to see in a minute as well. So certainly grabs the attention for both us and them and Euron has mastered this part of the dance. He comes to a dead island of fed up, defeated people, and he offers true magic tricks and wonder. As we said last week, he's just an enigma. They've never seen anything like him before. He completely whisks them away until they are putty in his hands. They are, well, they're primary school children in front of a toy chest and someone has just bought in a PlayStation. And for us, as readers, we've had so much talk of magic horns throughout, even if it seems like a, a little while ago now, especially up on the, on the wall with John, etc. And now we're seeing one that actually does something, or really, really looks like it is. So we get swept out as well. What is going on here? After the horn, we have this slow, silent walk up to the top of the hill. We're all holding our breath. George really knows how to create a scene of atmosphere, doesn't he? Aaron even feels a need to touch Naga's bone, just to help him with that strength again. He really needs that power up now. With his first sentence, Euron points out his claim in terms of relating back to Vicon, the old Greyjoy, as well as his uniqueness. All in one sentence, he has the background of what has come before, yet he is still entirely different. So you see what I mean about him always taking the best of both worlds. Immediately, he moves to the fact he doesn't elect either Victorian or Ash's roots, but will combine both into something more entire, more complete. And again, I have to point out Asher and Victorian's unmade joining. They could have challenged this, maybe. As it is now... No chance. Before we get to Euron's actual proposal, he compares himself to his namesake, the Crow, and we get a real strong connection to the name of this book. Westeros has been broken by all we've seen in the first three editions, and it lets the Crows come in. Some Crows are low-level scavengers, but some are like Euron, who see a world right for the taking. Here's a quote from his proposal. But I shall give you Lannisport, Highgarden, 
the Arbor, Old Town, the Riverlands and the Reach, the Kingswood and the Rainwood, Dawn and the Marches, the Mountains of the Moon and the Vale of Arran, Tarf and the Step Zones. I say we take it all. I say we take Westeros. Westeros is dying, Euron says just prior to this. He is the one to properly assess the Seven Kingdoms as a whole, which is weird, considering he's supposedly been nowhere near it for years. And now, what can be done with it? The Islanders don't normally bother with what's going on in the Greenlands, but Euron does. First, he offers not a continuation of a pointless war, nor the cutting of losses that Asher suggested, but instead, more than they could have ever dreamed of. For half a heartbeat, even Aeron was swept away by the boldness of his words. This is what I mean, it's so unthinkable, it's worth thinking about. Oh, I can walk to the sun. What are you talking about? I, I, hang on. You can do what? I'm going to need to hear about this. Again, it's Asher who kind of wakes up and challenges, demanding that there be some kind of logic behind such a bold claim. You can't just say that. You have to, you know, how? What's the backup? What's your evidence? So Euron provides some. Dragons. The ultimate shortcut to dominance. That horn we were also impressed with a second ago can apparently make use of them. And seeing what that horn has already done, it definitely makes you wonder what it could do. Is he being genuine? For us readers, we wonder and worry for the future of poor Daenerys. Is it possible she can have one of her children stolen from her, made into a fool? That would be devastating before we even think of the damage Euron could actually inflict if it works. As we've said over and over, Euron offers something so unthinkable and unimaginable, they almost have to go for it. Plunder, treasure, conquest, domination. You know these Ironborn would be hungry for it even without their recent defeat. And Euron is enough of a master of presentation to make it seem may be possible in their hearts and that is enough that's all it takes just the mere hint that we could do this or well, screw it let's go for it what what else are we waiting for here and we should know okay that's true that's he sweeps everyone up in this momentum but the possibility of glory is all well and good but it's the certainty of gold gifts that wins you on the actual day and we should know that later on as we'll see in the next time chapter even that is not entirely enough even when they get to the shield islands and they have all this conquesting they nearly just go back to, let's, let's just reeve and raid and go back. Their old ways die hard, basically, but that, we'll save that for next time. Let's close this chapter now by focusing back on its POV. Here's a quote from Aaron. Even a priest may doubt. Even a prophet may know terror. Aaron Dampere reached within himself for his god and discovered only silence. If you're going to feel bad for Aaron Dampere at any point, I suggest this one. As I've said before, I am not a fan of him, but this quote... That gets through to me. Ugh. It should get through to all of us. He reached within himself for his God and discovered only silence. That is a harrowing lie if I've ever heard it. And it ties back brilliantly to the beginning of the chapter. All that summoning of strength and shielding himself with his faith doesn't work. Aaron looks inside himself and his faith is gone. Silence, just like that terrible ship. Everything he didn't want to happen has and he was a big reason why. It's a horrible moment only topped by the finishing sentence about the hinge that's louder than a thousand voices. Aaron has lost. The terrible, world-changing era of Euron has arrived. And there we say goodbye to Aaron. We will not see him again in this book or in dance. He is believed to be in hiding for the rest of the published story, but unfortunately, we know his true fate thanks to that terrible, forsaken chapter, and things get so very, very much worse for the damp pair. And again, I recommend not a cast for thoughts on that. As we said at the time, this is a huge moment in the Ironborn history and it changes everything. We already know that the Shield Islands, they suffer terribly. Most assume that Old Town will be next. From there, well, for all we know, the whole of Westeros is going to fall under this crow's shadow. 
And we haven't even got onto the many theories about Euron being a warger, etc, etc. We're going to have to save that for another day. How he might actually take Old Town with Krakens and such. We could just talk about that for ages, couldn't we? What else his personal cruelty will extend to instead of just failure flowers and Aaron? He is terrible in the worst way. Like we said earlier, he's competent. He's a competent Joffrey, a competent Ramsay. We'll have to return to such at a later date. But what a opening for this little chunk of chapters here. It's not going to get that much happier in the next one, I have to confess. But let's get to it anyway. Let's move on to Brienne 4. So now we're zipping across to the other side of the continent, almost on a straight line, as we rejoin Brienne after one of our rare weeks off from her. And it's a pretty important chapter that I feel really kicks off her amazing run from here to the end of the book. Some of her next chapter, Brienne 5, not all that great for majority, but it does end with the Broken Man speech, so really looking forward to get to that one. And after, every Brienne chapter is absolutely gold. Some of the very best chapters in all A Song of Ice and Fire, so we've got a lot to look forward to. And before we can have that, George kind of makes us work for it with this chapter. This one, it mainly focuses in on the cost of Brienne's required distrust and what it does to people, but it also finishes with one of the very best fights of all. One that allows Brienne revenge on some clearly evil characters and allows her to make the world a little bit better, even if her personal quest doesn't go so well, and even if some victims aren't deserving. It's a bittersweet ending for True. This is also some of George's best episodic writing. We've spoken about how that is much more required here in Feast than the other three books, and we really get it not just here in Brienne 4, but also in the next chapter of Ariane 1. The fact that Nimble Dick Crab's entire arc, save from our brief meeting with him in Brienne 3, is entirely contained in this one chapter is just amazing. It's certainly something I forgot on my first couple of reads. You think back to Nimble Dick Crab, you assume he's there for two or three chapters. He's not. That entire story, just in this one chapter. It's the same for the Queenmaker plot. Yes, every chapter has its arc and structure, but in Feast, George moves into a territory of some chapters basically being a short story on their own, and Brienne 4 might be the best example of that. It also explains why this is the longest Brienne chapter, by some margin. Because yes, this is a travelogue chapter, if I ever saw one. There is a lot of literal movement. The prose and the atmosphere both become quite bogged down and heavy, which I think is intentional to display how Brienne feels about this quest, where... She really doesn't want to admit she's being led off the beaten track and it all just slows down for her, for us. When is it going to end? Where are we going to get to our destination? This might all be a trap, a huge waste of time. And like I say, it's never ending for both her and us. Now I'll be frank, past this chapter really do drag, but there's a purpose to that and we get the ultimate payoff at the end. It's all worth it. So let's look at our geography here before we get going because we are in yet another area where we've never been before, although Brienne did suggest coming vaguely this way on her original journey with Jamie. Yes, this chapter takes place on Crackclaw Point, the outcrop jutting out into the narrow sea and dividing Blackwater Bay and the Bay of Crabs, or separating the Crownlands and the Vale, to put it another way, basically. And we've never been here. This is an empty feeling. It's a kind of forgotten land that seems wasted and still living in the past despite its pretty prime location overall. It's about halfway along the length of the continent, right between Bravos and Pentos. You'd expect it to be uh, a bit more prominent, and it probably was centuries prior, but not now. Now it's forgotten there, and it's great for hiding out. Dick Crab is going to give us plenty of background as we go, but it's interesting that we do get this far off the beaten track with Brienne before she turns around and gets back to the Riverlands to do even more good deeds. Before we get on, the most important part of this chapter is, is it's the first real roadblock of her quest. She's had to be careful, she's been threatened, but nothing has actually endangered Brienne so far. And that worrying and distrust is going to be thrown under the microscope as she comes face to face with true evil again, and as well as stupidly 
one-sided odds. She has to fight off rape, torture and certain death for her and her friends. We know Brienne has always been a hero. Here's where she and Oathkeeper show the world that very same thing. So let's get going. Precautions and distrust are the main theme of the day. And it's evident on page one. Brienne won't let Dick into the bed or even in their room. She reminds herself and him that she is the one with the sword. She's the fighter, which is poignant given the chapter's end. And yet she's still in this podrick to take a watch each night because you can never be too careful. I think she struggles with this because she doesn't want to put Pod in any extra danger, but she knows that she needs him. So it's nice to see those two relying on each other and finding this teamwork thing. I like Pod saying he would kill Dick as well because of course he's confident he could. He did kill the Kingsguard after all. And Brienne also mentions that she waits quickly. That's just how she's built. You have to ask yourself why she has trained herself to wait quickly and get some unfortunate answers. This is followed up on straight away when, while out on the road, Dick tries to look in the saddlebags but it gets caught flower-handed. And it's pretty clever for Brienne to fatten her purse like that. What this little scene does, as well as really making us question friendly old Dick Crabbe with his quick tongue and friendly nature, is show us that this distrust thing works both ways. Brienne doesn't look like a bandit who'll use her gold sword to rob you, but then Dick doesn't look to be any sort of threat. He has to make sure he's not being swindled too. People have to look after themselves in this world. We see these type of questions seep into every facet of their journey. Is Dick Crabbe singing to lull them into a false sense of security? Or is Dick Crabbe singing because he likes to sing? It's a great example of what this war has done to people, Brienne in this case, and what reading about these events has done to us as readers because we are asking the same questions on every page given the kind of portrayals and double-crossing we've already seen throughout the series. From there, we get into a bit of story time as Dick fills us in with the history of Cracklaw Point, how they fight in similar fashion to the Dornish or even the Cranach men by using the land to fend off the Andals. Indeed, they were one of the very rare parts of the eastern coast conquered by marriage rather than sword. That type of thing was usually reserved for the western kingdoms. And you can see Dick takes strong pride in the history of his homeland. I quite like this passage because I had to look a lot at the different type of Andal integrations for the Castles book, so this bit is good for me. The conversation turns into Brienne actually engaging her travel partner with a bit of chit-chat about her own local heroes. I love the fact that neither of them have heard of the other's legend, despite Tarth and Crackgore Point not being a billion miles from each other, they're not next door, but we're not talking dawn to the wall here, are we? It shows how local legends and stories grow, and that's cool to see after we've just had all this stuff about Naga, the Sea Dragon, and the Ironborn's own legends. Let's take a tad closer look at Brienne's story of Sir Galadon of Morn and his sword just made, supposedly given to him by the maiden herself. Lots of sword talk today. There are a few comparisons in there. Though Brienne herself is a maid, she identifies much more with the warrior, or Sir Galadon in this respect. He was known as the perfect knight, and Brienne certainly proves herself to be the same for in this throughout this story. He is given a sword by his lover, as Brienne was gifted by Jamie, not a lover, but certainly in that realm, perhaps, and that sword is called Just Made, a name you could easily place upon Brienne. Not sure if that means anything, but it doesn't make you think, especially when Just Made was supposedly used to slay a dragon. We'll have to see if Brienne ends up doing similar to a Targaryen or an actual dragon. We love the dragons, I know, but imagine Brienne's arc finishing that way. Wow. The conversation actually turns to the coming of the dragons and the many lords of Crackcore Point giving up their rule to Visenya without a fuss. But crucially, they still resisted the Celtigars or those from Maidenpool or whatever. According to Dick, they didn't consider Robert a true king either. They are still loyal to the Targaryens, perhaps explaining why the area hasn't been cared for recently. And that seems ever more important to take note of as we go here, especially given the proximity to King's Landing and central Westeros. There was crabs and brunes and bogses with Prince Rhaegar on the trident, and in the Kingsguard too. We're all good dragon men up Crackcore Way. 
Yeah, that seems like something we should remember come wins and beyond. We get this further sense of going off past the edge as Brienne moves away from the busy roads we've seen her on so far. We have another incidence of mistrust when she doesn't allow Dick up into the barn, despite the process about freezing in the rain, etc. And again, we have to ask the same questions as Brienne does, and we can easily fall into feeling sorry for him. This throws Brienne down memory lane, back to her childhood, where she was lied to all the time to gain her father's favour. That's rubbish to hear, but it's much improved when she remembers Bitterbridge and how she specifically sought out her suitors that played this horrible trick, trouncing each and every one of them. Here's a quote. And when the last of them had fallen, the mother delivered Connington to her. This time Sir Ronnet held a sword and not a rose. Every blow she dealt him was sweeter than a kiss. Back on the road, we drift ever further and further. Roads become tracks, tracks to mud and rain everywhere. Like back in Catelyn's Storm chapters, the rain is put to work in creating an atmosphere. It's this unrelenting drudgery that dampens all their spirits and sucks any coolness out of proceedings. While riding through this rain, Brienne has a paragraph that probably sums up the distrust theme best of all. She first thinks this. Despite its squirrel skin lining, Dick's cloak soaked through and she could see him shivering. Brienne felt a moment's pity for the man. He has not eaten well, that's plain. She and we feel some guilt for Dick. He might be a man just trying to claw out an existence and having a rough time of it. He might have been pushed into this by a rough world. She could have let him in the barn just to keep the chill off and make him slightly more comfortable. But in this very same thought, she goes straight into this. Hungry men do desperate things. This all might be some ploy to cozen her. Suspicion soured her stomach. This is the choice Brienne suffers through for the entire chapter. It continues like this in the next few lines as well, with her analysing, looking for any clue, and never knowing anything definitive. It's very stressful for all. Dick's next tale is on the squishes, which I know many people enjoy, but for Brienne it's just more misery out in the wild as she wonders about Sansa and reflects on her supposed failures of the past. Again, the atmosphere lowers and lowers the further we go, and that's with them still on a vague road. Soon they come to Dyer Den, which I guess was once home to Sir Lothor of Peter Baelish Company. Now they're headed inland, off the tracks completely, although not before Podrick spots a rider behind them, giving Brienne yet more misgivings, even if we re-readers can solve at least one mystery and name the rider Hyle Hunt. One thing we can't answer, and that sticks out to me a lot more this time round, is whether Dick was involved with the Bruins in one way or another. Brienne suggests as much. He does know the land impeccably well, knows a lot about the family, and is in a rush to be off. So maybe he has some history there, I guess we'll never know now. See what I mean about the chapter rubbing off on us though. And we can even add High Hunt into the is is he in a rush because he thinks Brienne has bought this extra rider, not him. It's round and round we go, everyone being suspicious of everyone else. Repetitive, gloomy, tough, the chapter goes on. Brienne doesn't like the journey, and it inspires a lot of concern. This is the slog part for us as well, but again, I think that's pretty intentional from George to put us in Brienne's mindset. Eventually, her frustration grows so much that she thinks this. It may be that I need to kill him, she told herself one night as she paced about the camp. The notion made her queasy. That's in the relation to the rider behind them, but still, it gives us some more life lessons from good old Sir Godwin, Brienne's childhood mentor, and some more of the tough road Brienne had to travel as a child wanting to be a warrior. This time, the lesson she remembers is to never hesitate from killing. That's timely advice for this chapter, as we will revisit that. Finally, 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 we reach the ruins of the Whispers, but even that doesn't escape the feeling of waste and of tasks to be cleared first. Before we even get into the castle, we have this scene upon a cliff, where all of Brienne's stressing about distrust comes to her head. He put one hand on her back and pointed with the other. Brienne's flesh prickled. One shove and I'll be down there with the tower. She stepped back. Keep your hands off me. Crab made a face. I was only... I don't care what you were only. Where's the gate? 
you can see how worn down Brienne is. She rarely snaps like this. And for me personally, it makes me feel really bad for Dick. He genuinely seems like a nice guy who wants to show off some of his history because his present isn't so nice. He actually seems like a guy who'd quite appreciate a friend. I can see why Brienne reacts this way, but it still has me feeling for him. Especially when he worries about the fact he wasn't completely honest with those he sold the map to, showing he does well have that capacity for uh, not being straightforward. This part might even be harder on reread knowing what's coming, I think. As we approach the end of the chapter, we get bravery from both Brienne and Pod. Brienne already knows it's not Sansa there and something bad is coming. She's got that kind of spidey sense. But she goes in anyway. Typical Brienne. Pod is just as brave he wants to go in too, but she won't risk him in that manner, although she saves his feelings on the subject. We get this next, even more emotional quote. A sword? Nimble Dick scratched behind his ear. You got a sword in your hand. What do you need another for? This one's for you. Brienne offered him the hilt. It's a touching moment completely out of left field, in complete contrast to all this build-up we've had through the entire chapter, because when it comes down to it, Brienne chooses to trust Dick. You can see what this means to him. She's giving a down-on-his-luck guy some much-needed pride. From there, George builds the tension expertly, of course. We get a long description of the castle and the godswood they end up in. Of course it's a godswood, it's always a godswood. Before Brienne spots the fire remnants and we all seize up, Dick starts yelling, giving us one last chance to doubt him, and then they emerge, the evil ones Brienne has met before. First Pig, then Timion, and finally Shagwell. Brienne's first thought is protecting Dick, of course, because Brienne is Brienne. Unfortunately, Dick doesn't heed the call, and within seconds, Shagwell sends a morning star through his knee, and it is incredibly tough to read when Dick begs for his life because Shagwell whirls again, this time caving in Dick's face. Fast as that is done, quick as, the, quick as you like. There's not even a second for Brienne to intervene, and her trusting sword wasn't enough. Just like that, he's gone, and it's Brienne against three. The reading doesn't exactly get easier here, as we have to listen to Shagwell talk to Brienne as she's forced against a cliff and realises the great misunderstanding that brought her here. Passage for free, Brienne remembered. Dick was at least telling one truth. There was a fool buying passage for free. It's sheer bad luck they matched the description Brienne was hunting for. She's come this far, Dick has died, and maybe her soon after, all for a mere misunderstanding. Timian updates us on the splitting of the Bloody Mummers, and eagle-eyed rereaders will note he says Rorge made for salt pans where this terrible raid happened. Ironically, Timian is actually very well informed. He knows Sandal took Aya, and that they killed Gregor's men at the inn. Unfortunately, we learn that particular innkeeper met a, a bad end after that, but Brienne is not focusing on tales of wolf and hound just now. She knows she has a fight on any second, and the three near and threaten against Shagwell not being particularly polite. Timian offers a choice, one I also won't repeat here because I don't want to, and Brienne comes up with a third option, steel. Lightning quick, she gets pig first in the leg and then in the throat. Her skill, her deadness is undoubtable now, and her confidence surges as she dares Timian to throw his spear and make his own choice. We have this quote after the fact. I did not flinch, she thought, as blood ran red down her cheek. Did you see, Sir Goodwin? And that's, uh, that's the chef's kiss me. Brilliant line to finish that off. Unfortunately, she's wound up with one in front and one behind. Again, the female's choice. Luckily, a stone from Podrick chooses for her, and Pod keeps up his streak as the university's best squire. And that's all Brienne needs to really get going. Let's have this quote about her fight with Timian. He was better than Pig, but he had only a short throwing spear, and she had a Valerian steel blade. Oathkeeper was alive in her hands. She had never been so quick. The Timian is stomach and then a hand, taken for Jamie. Brienne even has time to think before she ends him. And just like that, the duel is done. Podrick lands another three-pointer, and Shagwell is yielding and begging and pathetic. Standing over him, fueled by justice and bloodlust that 
that real uh, red shadow coming down over the eyes like Jamie described to Tyrion, that Tyrion himself experienced on the Blackwater. It all comes down to Brienne as she shows her dark side by ordering him to dig a grave with his bare hands. At least one of them will pay some kind of penance before they go. Another quote here. Possibly the most emotional. Brienne sheaved Oathkeeper, gathered up Dick Crab, and carried him to the hole. His face was hard to look on. I'm sorry that I never trusted you. I don't know how to do that anymore. It's not only incredibly sobering and hard-hitting after this quick-paced action, but it relates to the major theme of this book of what war does to people. And it is also, not only that, but a clever plan to bait Shagwell, to give her an excuse. I don't know if Brienne would have had it in her to do a straight-up execution, and this way, she doesn't need to. She tricks him into trying his best, turns round and finishes him. And, well, let's have a quote for him as well, shall we? Laugh, she snarled at him. He moaned instead. Laugh, she repeated, grabbing his throat with one hand and stabbing at his belly with the other. Laugh, she kept saying it over and over until her hand was red up to the wrist and the stink of the fool's dying was like to choke her. But Shagwell never laughed. The sobs that Brienne heard were all her own. When she realised that, she threw down her knife and shuddered. So any chance we had of revelling in the fact that Brienne wins a one-on-three duel against some of the most evil people we ever meet goes right out the window. It is so very similar to when we saw Aya at the end of uh, Storm. It was vengeance then, it's justice now, but that doesn't make it any easier. Winning isn't winning in a world like this. It's another form of loss, and Brienne feels it in her heart, even as she strikes a blow for all of Shagwell's victims. This costs her something. And there are further notes from the end of this chapter when Hyle turns up. Thanks for helping out, Hyle. And um, we'll talk about the, the hound a little bit. She still pays Dick. I think that's the most emotional part. She still drops the gold into Dick's grave there. But I think really let's, let's just leave it there with that image of Brienne suffering from having to kill. Even when it's a good kill. It's a, a kill you can take pride and joy in. It costs something. Okay, let's move on to our third chapter of the day. It is Ariane 1 slash The Queenmaker. Song of Ice and Fire is a story of a thousand plans going wrong at once. But if you say that phrase to people, I imagine most of them start talking about this chapter here. This is the most obvious, one of the quickest plans to go wrong, and one with some pretty large consequences. It is also our final new POV, 20-some-odd chapters into the book, so that's something, isn't it? I've got to say, I really do like this chapter. I like Ariane as a POV, I like this little heist scenario around the cellar, and of course how wrong it goes. It's not a great streak, really, for our favourite female characters, is it? Asha loses, the king's moot, Brienne's just suffered, and Ariane doesn't do much better here. Luckily, Aya has a bit of a better time of it later, but we'll get to that in a moment. I like the setting here, uh, like getting some Marcella finally. We get to meet Darkstar. It's a great chapter to get involved with, so let's do just that. We open on a rather beautifully described landscape of sandy dunes and a golden purple sky. We've come to Shandystone, the abandoned well in the Dornish desert, and yet another new place for us, both in terms of specific location and the general area. We've been to the Red Waste, that's true, but that was a long way back, and it doesn't sound half as lovely as this. This is the only chapter we have in the Wilds of Dawn, but you'll assume we'll get something similar in Area Hotar in Winds, maybe. It's another old ruin long past its best day as well. It's good sequencing by George. It's the same as the Whispers, the same as Naga's Bones, old and gone, basically. This first page provides us the location, and that's enough to get us thinking straight away after the surprise of finding an Ariane chapter. We know she had plans of Aris, we know they involved Marcella, and Ariane is obviously somewhere outside Swanspear, so something is definitely going down. But who are these new people? Every heist movie needs a squad and a team, and we get introduced to them all here. Let's have a quick rundown. 
we have Dre or Andre Dalt, a younger son of the Dalt family. So we're meeting a bit more Dornish nobility here. He is going to end up in Gaston Grey first, then on to serve Malario in Norvos, just to jump here forward a bit here. We can discuss all these more when we get to Duran's sentencing, but it's worth considering now what this escapade is going to cost all these people as we go in. One day out in the sun on an adventure, cost Dre three years of his life. Like Quentin will say later, adventure stink. We get more nobility and Silver Santagar, and she's going to end up married to old Elden Estemont, probably getting the worst deal out of everyone. It's funny how that tends to happen to the girls, isn't it? The boys get a couple of years, Silver gets her life taken away from her. Garen, the Greenblood orphan, a childhood friend of Ariane's, via his mother being a wet nurse. He's up next, and he also goes to Gaston Grey before being sent to Tyrosh for two years. Not great, considering the current climate, but again, only two years, not as bad as Silver. Bear in mind, we keep saying teenage escapade, off on an adventure, etc., but these guys are actually in their early 20s. In Westerosi terms, they are more like mid-30s for us. Compare their attitude and approach to a 16-year-old John up at the wall, for example. These guys are all maybe as much as 10 years older than John, and he's having to deal with much more difficult things than they are at the moment. Finally, we also have Darkstar, who is again part of the Dornish nobility, even if he's not part of this little group of young friends. He's the creepy, older, edgy guy who likes showing off how dangerous he is, even if he's actually only about two years older, as well as a certain disdain for historical celebrity. He makes sure that comes across as well. But for now, only called Darkstar, so we don't know the background, though we don't have to wait too long. Dre and Silver aren't immediately given their surnames either, signifying that Ariane views this as a group of friends, not a collection of political pieces like her father might. It's a summer romp, guys. It's a road trip. Here's our first quote of the chapter. My uncle brought me here, of Tyene and Sorella. The Oberyn lives on in many ways. We know Ariane and Tyene are super close. This introduces the chance they were close with Sorella at one point too, opening up that whole mystery again. Would certainly be interesting for those to all cross paths one day, seeing as what Sorella assumedly now knows from her time in Old Town. Yeah, that would be damn interesting. And also, it just shows us that others remember Oberyn as well. They all kind of chime in here of, well, Oberyn was the celebrity, wasn't he? He was the, the cool guy to know, and they all loved him in their own way. He was a pretty hard guy to ignore. For Ariane, she mixes this memory in with her plan here, and we can already see there's a kind of wistful romance she's feeling about this whole thing. This is a justice she's created herself in this beautiful scenery with her childhood friends. She's fond of Eris as well, she's going to crown the cellar, everything is going to go right in her life thanks to her own plotting after being cooped up and forgotten in Sunspear. That alone probably tells us how bad it's going to go, of course, doesn't it? I dreamed, she said, and when the sun went down, I sat cross-legged at my uncle's feet and begged him for a story. That's what she thinks she's in at the moment. Yes, she's a lot older than Sansa, but there's some elements there still. She thinks she's making her own story. Let's get a Dark Star quote, shall we? Because we know we like those. He snorted. I shall remain Dark Star, I think. At least it is mine own. Yeah, here we go. This is more like it. This is a chapter full of people we'll never see again on the page. Not in Feast, anyway. Although Aris is her, a dead cert. We're definitely not seeing him again any further. Even Marcella is gone from us after this. But Dark Star remains such a hot topic amongst the fandom. Mainly because we assume we're going to see him again. But also because he's kind of hilarious in the statements he makes. It's easy to mock him, but still, he is very interesting. Obviously dangerous, resourceful, he's got the looks, and he's a Dane. How often do we get to meet one of those? Hardly at all. It seems like an age since we saw a young Edric, and we don't even know where he is at the end of the series. So Darkstar looms large. He's edgy, he's deadly, he clearly plays by his own rules, and we want to know why he's here. He's pretty damn far from home, after all. We're still between God's Grace and the Planky Town, so it's different territory for him. Let's have another quote about him this time. 
He must have felt her gaze upon him, for he looked up from his sword, met her eyes, and smiled. Ariane felt heat rushing to her face. I should never have brought him. If he gives me such a look when Aris is here, we will have blood on the sand. Whose, she could not say. By tradition, the Kingsguard were the finest knights in all the Seven Kingdoms. But Darkstar was Darkstar. That's a pretty good summary, right there, well done Ariane. And some more tension setting by George, both in terms of love and war. Will Ariane leave Aris's bed for Gerald's, and could that lead to steel? Yes, George does some good directing us in the wrong way here. We already think there's going to be a fight where Aris will come off worse, but we think it's going to be with this much-admired dark star, not with Ariahota. Every summer adventure needs some time around a fire, which is where the friends, plus Darkstar, again connect back to the prologue with news of dragons, which is promptly ignored, of course, and a whole bunch of other stuff from Essos. Most notably, the Golden Company breaking its contract with Myrrh. That was discussed in Cersei's Small Council chapter last week, so George is just sprinkling the seeds that connect the two novels, especially with Ariane thinking of Quentin and how he would never win Dawn from her. We already know that A, he didn't want to do that, and B, isn't going to get the chance to do now anyway, but Ariane is still correct. He'd never be able to rouse support like she can. You will need bitter steel and more, brother, if you think to set me aside. This is also where we get the first mention of Beneath the Gold, the Bitter Steel, which we'll get much more of in Dance. That's interesting. Still around the fire, and after Darkstar has proven how manly he is versus snakes, the other companions confess they aren't so fond of the outsider. So his reputation goes before him, but it also spurs Ariane into giving a little reasoning of his inclusion. Firstly, his pure skill at arms. She sure does need that, although it also hints that she's even not confident in Ares' commitment or in his own skill, but she also wants High Hermitage, the second Dane castle. So we learn a bit more of Gerald's background. It also gives us our second Quentin mention in as many pages, and we can really see Ariane's drive and resolution coming through. This really, really matters to her. Of course, do, do you blame her? Her own family supposedly sneaking behind her back to remove her, both father and brother, possibly in the coots. The Martells are pretty far off from the Lannisters, but they ain't the Starks either. Ariane hints that she's more on side with Malario and gives us a glimpse into Duran's marriage, and that provides some insight into how she believes Duran treats his children as pieces, and she's not wrong there, though she currently thinks he values one more than the other. Darkstar comes to share his own set of misgivings with the princess, his with the overall goal of starting a war as the main goal. He believes the reason to be the vengeance that the Shadow City and the Sand Snakes have been calling for. The Dornish believe in blood debts, as we just saw of the Quentin talk, and two big ones are owed by the Lannisters both in recent years and from further back. Though a percentage of Ariane's motivation does lie that way, although more in Oberyn's favour than Elia's, she also privately shows us how large a percentage is about protecting her own interests. You want a little taste of lion blood. That and my birthright. I want Sunspear and my father's seat. I want Dawn. I want justice, she said. That's classic George writing a complex character. Yes, she's invested in the larger, but she also has her deeply personal, deeply powerful drive going on here. Either way, Darkstar claims... A crowning is not enough to start a war, only a killing will do it. That's an interesting take. What would Cersei do if she found out Marcella had been crowned? I'm unsure. She's certainly volatile enough to react with war to almost any news, and we do know she's already planned on getting Marcella back. What I'll say is Darkstar's right that killing Marcella 99% starts an immediate war on Cersei's command, and she would have the precedent and the chance to get a lot of support if it's painted with the killing-slash-death of a hostage. That would get a lot of people on the side. But... I'm not totally certain a crowning would definitely do the trick as well. Either way, we've got to remember, they still think they're dealing with Tywin, not Cersei. I'm completely divided on which option would more likely induce a war if Tywin's in charge. You'd think it'd be a murder, but as Marcella is a Baratheon, 
and a woman, would he react as strongly as someone trying to claim his slash Tommen's grip on the Iron Throne itself? Really not sure about that one. It's important this point is raised right next to Ariane talking about her own interests because she immediately thinks, I am no murderer of children, and says as much to Gerald. So we quickly learn that Ariane might be ambitious or protective over her title, but she's not an inherently bad person. We told you, she's no Lannister. We also have Darkstar doing a bit of boasting about Danes killing Oakhearts. Ariane points out the other side, say it's the other way, and we know the truth of that from Aris's chapter, so it's quite funny to have that duality. Speaking of Mr. Soilcloak, here he comes now to round off the little party, and he brings Marcella with him, which is awesome. We don't get nearly enough Marcella time as we should in this series, and as mentioned, this will be the last time we see her on page, unfortunately, so make sure we appreciate it. Though Ariane and the group, excluding Darkstar obviously, shows how ready to play the part they are in terms of being friendly and polite, welcome and reassuring. Marcella also immediately shows off her keen wits. She knows straight away this ain't right. And because she's wonderful, her first thought is to ask if Tommen is okay because the term your grace should mean that he's not. She's no less wary, though still plenty polite, as Ariane introduces the rest of the group, this time using their proper names and titles. And here's where we do have to speak ill of Ariane. Much as she is a cool character whose POVs I enjoy very much, and much as her quest against Quentin is understandable, you can really see how she's abusing Rosella here. She might not want the child dead, but she still turns her from a child into a commodity, just like so many do with Tommen. We'll come to this later, but Marcella nearly dies because of this, and even ignoring the physical danger, she's lying, kind of, about Tommen and what's up with him, Ariane is. She's confusing Marcella about the laws of inheritance in different places, she's misleading her, and we really see her own insecurities coming out. She wants Marcella to win over her brother because she wants to win over her brother, and it's just a shame to see Marcella used in this way. Especially when she is so brilliant meeting these people. She's wary, but asking the right questions. She's great. From Eris, we get this. She knew this was no game. The girl is brave and wise beyond her years. She did all I asked for her and never asked a question. Ariane next introduces Darkstar, though she names him a Knight of Starfall instead of High Hermitage, which is interesting. And Marcella again shows off her history knowledge. We love Tommen, but Marcella is so much cooler. Anyway, it leads to this classic exchange. He was the Sword of the Morning. He is dead. Are you of the Sword of the Morning now? No. Men call me Darkstar, and I am of the Night. The famous one. That's the one everyone likes. And there's also some background info we are all hungry for. It's a pretty weird way to introduce yourself to a kid, but we've got to remember as cool as Darkstar is painted, and as much of a fan favourite as he is, he's also saying hi to a girl he fully plans on murdering in the near future. He's also pretty peeved about being shunned in memory for Arthur, that celebrity thing we spoke about before. Aris sticks up for the deceased member of his brotherhood and sticks with his vibe. There's also the mini-argument that Arthur merely had a great sword, even though he's famous to us as a great swordsman, perhaps the best. And this sword versus skill argument is one we've had a bunch and will have a bunch throughout this book and when dance as well. Arist himself takes Arian off for news about House Lannister, Tywin's death and Cersei's ascension, which Arian decides she likes. We also learn the ins and outs of Marcella's escape and why Arianne needed Aris so much. Plus, we can put away the idea that Aris is a dim guy. In respect to women and morals, sure. But he's quick enough on the draw to say red spots instead of grayscale, therefore keeping the maester away, so well done him. Of course, he also uses the opportunity to do a quick bit of groping and proving his vices once more, as well as the fact it turns out that Ariane has only told him half a plan. He snuck Marcella out of the city without a clue where she's going or really doing. But we want to know these answers also as well. But Ariane is tantal enough to kind of delay him yet a bit more. So off we go, and uh, they're riding off now across moonlit sands. We are seven, Ariane realised as they rode. That's the 
imagery in this chapter we get. The romanticism returns to Ariane's thoughts. They simply cannot fail. It is all too beautiful. She's even thinking of what they will do after victory and is confident that Darkstar, not Aris, make note of that, is confident enough to destroy any enemy for her. We have this quote in relation to her father. It was time he put his burdens down, but I will suffer no slights to his honour or his person. She would return him to his water gardens to live out what years remained him, surrounded by laughing children and the smell of limes and oranges. Yes, and Quentin can keep him company. Once I crown the cellar and free the sand snakes, all dawn will rally to my banners. Again, she's not vindictive. She still loves both father and brother. She just wants what is hers. On the ride, Garen gives some backstory on the Orphans of the Greenblood, the Roinar, which Marcella knew the Dornish are connected to, and that's pretty deep history, she's a real smart kid, which will come up a lot in Tyrion's chapters, and they also talk on Nymeria as well, which is one of the more interesting stories in all Westeros history, I think. As the sun rises, we see there's already cracks in Ariane's plans due to their late leaving. That's not too bad, but it'll get a lot worse in a second. We also get to immediately see how harsh the Dornish landscape is in the sun, we can really put ourselves back through history now. Aegon's war in Dawn from Fire and Blood and the conquest of Darien that we know so well, of which we get a mention here, you can see why they suffered, basically. I know why my princess wears a veil, Sir Aris said as she was fastening it to the temples of her copper helm. Elsewise, her beauty would outshine the sun above. She had to laugh. No, your princess wears a veil to keep the glare out of her eyes and the sand out of her mouth. You should do the same, sir. She wondered how long her white knight had been polishing his ponderous gallantry. So Aris was pleasant company abed, but Wit and he were strangers. Ah, so here is why we think he's so dim, and we'd be right. He's utterly foolish here, completely proud and arrogant. Assumedly, he thinks he's proving his manliness or bravery to Ariane or Darkstar, who knows. Either way, what he's actually doing is he's playing the arrogant tourist, not paying respect to the land, and it really serves to the atmosphere of what's about to happen to him in a minute. Finally, we come to our target, the Greenblood. Tick another river off your checklist. While technically it might not be as beautiful as others we see in the series, it's one of the most critical in this dry land, and the description here really does make it seem beautiful. And again, I had to talk a lot about this and the Dornish geography in the Castles book, so I really do enjoy this chapter. On the approach, we also crucially learn the second part of Ariane's plan via her inner monologue, the part that will never be fulfilled. She intends to go dead west across central Dawn, recruiting the Corgiles of Sandstone, before doing the actual crowning at the hellhole of the others, and always coming closer to Darkstar's lands. So it seems she has planned to include a whole bunch of Dawn in this plan. Would it have worked? That's the question. Would she or Marcella have been seized instead of as hostages against a weakened Durant? Always a possibility. Would Darkstar have killed Marcella eventually before any of this works anyway? Our last alarms, left, right and centre. And irrelevant now because they are approaching the boat. So prep yourselves because this ending comes really, really quickly. Your queen is here and wants her royal welcome. Come up, come out. We'll have some songs and sweet wine. My mouth is set for... The door on the pole boat slammed open. Out into the sunlight stepped Ario Hotar, long axe in hand. Ariane felt as though an axe had caught her in the belly. It was not supposed to end this way. This was not supposed to happen. Oh, best laid plans, eh? Well, best enjoyed road trips as well. Ario's appearance is utterly out of the blue for the first time reader, and everything really does happen very, very quick. Too quick for Ariane, who can't quite comprehend that she's failed. She can't compute, can't react. In fairness, she gets out in order to get away and to protect the cellar, but now we really see the reality of this group. This was never real. It was always a bunch of essential kids. Dre is making jokes and surrendering. Garen is backing away. The description of Marcella just being still and unknowing fills my stomach, the poor, innocent girl. Having said that, maybe this isn't the childish choice, just a smart one, one that Aris doesn't go for. 
We are taken, sir, Ariane might have called out. Your death will not free us. If you love your princess, yield. But when she tried to speak, the words caught in her throat. So Aris Hocart gave her one last longing look, and then put his golden spurs into his horse and charged. Here comes the final, stupidly gallant act of Sir Aris Oakhart. Interestingly, he uses the term her when crying his defiance, and Ariane uses princess, so it's unclear who Aris is really acting for here. For my money, it's just the fact he wants to do something cool. He wants to impress his beloved, and figured this is the best way. Or maybe he just thinks this will save them and earn him a song. I say it's just another way to try and get under Ariane's skirts, personally. Either way, I think it's clear he was hoping that Ariane would at least say something, declare her love, ask him not to do it, all too late. The white knight raised his blade too slowly. Hotar's longaxe took his right arm off at the shoulder, spun away spraying blood, and came flashing back again in a terrible two-handed slash that removed the head of Aris Oakheart and sent it spinning through the air. It landed amongst the reeds, and the green blood swallowed the red with a soft splash. In fairness, Aris does pretty well to get that far, he does really go for it, but he's not exactly a challenge for that end goal of Ario. Though we really do get the impression, even if he was approaching on his best day, he would be no match. How could he know? she asked the captain. I was so careful. How could he know? Someone told, Hotar shrugged. Someone always tells. The rest is chaos for the first time reader and for Ariane both. She hears Marcella shrieking and then she's bleeding. Aria is sending men after someone. But after a few minutes thought, we can guess that, that means Darkstar. But what about Marcella? Is she dead? Is she dying? Is she injured? Are the others fighting as well? Again, the action is so fast and it's one of my personal favourite sequences of how brilliant it is in so short a space. I forgot actually how short the entire chapter is, but still brilliant. So the plan is broken. Duran remains the mastermind of the family and trust has been misplaced somewhere. We still have this particular mystery and I, I wonder if we'll actually ever find out. Not really have time to guess here on who told and, or if we we'll indeed will know, but well... Poor Ariane, best laid plans. Again, a superb chapter, one I really, really enjoy. Let's move on, time is pressing, let's move on to our last chapter of the day. Another one we have to appreciate is Aya 2. So we don't have to wave goodbye to Ariane, and we don't really have to wave goodbye to Aria either, except in a way we do. This is the final chapter with an Aya title, both in Feast and Dance. For Feast, this is the literal midpoint of Aya's arc. Her first was her introduction to Bravos and the Temple, this one is really her immersion into said temple, and, well, we know what's coming later. She'll learn the history of the Faceless Men, she starts getting hints of their magic, we kind of find out the waste deal a little bit, what I must give up, and then later in that final chapter we'll have Cab the Canals. We'll really see her in stride, knowing Bravos, knowing her way around and her, her deal, and her being willing to kill still for Aya. But that's still to come. Before she can secretly be Aya, she has to publicly dismiss her persona, which is essentially what this chapter is. It's Aya making the choice to go all in on the faceless men, on Bravos, on revenge, even if she has to give up who she is. Identity is a major theme for Aya, more so than any other character not named Reek, and the many roles she's played through the first three books have allowed us to discuss that, but now the idea is no one, no identity, and that's a different kettle of fish entirely. This is a road no one could have imagined they would walk, and now Aya finds herself on what, yes, might be the only road truly available to her, but also one that might enable what still burns in her heart, that revenge. This might be a chapter of Aya trying to give up Aya, but we never say she succeeded. Case in point, we start the chapter about not being Aya with one of the features most associated with Aya, her list. We did a little update on that list at the end of Storm, and not all that much has changed. As it stands right now, we know Gregor is dying in tremendous pain, and that Cersei believes herself on top of the world. Soon enough, we'll have our first update on Ill and Pain in a long time. 
But other than that, it's all fairly status quo. And obviously, Aya knows none of this anyway, other than the fact she wants to include all the phrase as well, which many believe indicates a future plot point for her return. I like to indulge in that, I must admit. She's mixing in these great portrayals and murders of her father and her mother and Rob, and all of them, they're one thing for her now. Just one of those would be a soul-shattering, life-changing thing, but Aya's all of them to deal with. Most importantly, we establish straight away the need for vengeance. But as this is the day for connecting the House of Black and White to Aya's story, we have to conjoin that theme with Aya's straight away. One day I'll know, she told herself, and then I'll kill them all. No whisper was too faint to be heard in the House of Black and White. From the off, we know this is a creepy place that isn't quite what it seems. Initially, we can compare it to the Red Keep, but we'll quickly learn it's much more mysterious than that. For now, we have the kindly man insisting that the house isn't where you come to learn to be a secret ninja killer, but a servant of God, while at the same time admitting Aya really does want to be here so that she can go back with the tools for vengeance, even though she'll deny that later on. Already, the kindly man's explanation seems a bit thin and, frankly, bullshit, but we'll look at that in great detail later. As Aya begins familiarising us with the details of the temple, of Umma the cook and what everyone wears, etc., she also counts up all the former identities she's been through in so short a time while also admitting each of them was merely a disguise. Truly, she's always been Aya Stark. The next step is going to be her greatest disguise yet, when she makes the attempt to shed even Aya. But that's the other great part of this chapter, the fact it isn't going to work, no matter what the kindly man asks or what she answers. We're further immersed into the comings and goings of the temple, the black pool, the prayers and the visitors. When Aya is looking through the 30 gods in the temple, she includes this in her list. Sailors to the moon pale maiden and the Merlin king. I bring that up because you might remember Merlin King as the ship that took Littlefinger and Sansa from King's Landing up to the Vale. You know, Sansa, the maiden, the quite pale maiden. The one who has a fair bit of moon imagery thanks to the moon door and the fact she's a wolf. It's worth mentioning, I thought. The entire setup and description of the House of Black and White is intentionally creepy and gloomy. It's this big, dark, kind of gothic place full of weird statues and little crevices. There's a, a pool in the middle. There's hidden rooms of swords and clothes and maybe even treasure. There's an inner sanctum. It really f full on sounds like something you'd find four levels down in Skyrim. An inner sanctum, where you aren't allowed to go in or know what happens. Yeah, that's House of Horror stuff. But there's also this mixture of a kind of comforting sereneness. There's the absence of pain and the ease of passing. The being able to do so besides one's god or idol. There's a really interesting contrast that produces a pretty cool atmosphere that I experiences as she goes round on this little death watch each morning. And he, again, we have to think... Wow, this 10-year-old girl should not be in such an atmosphere. But it also undeniably fits with Aya. She's already so associated with death, and given a lot of the violence she's seen, this must be damn civilised in comparison for her. She basically slots right in, as Aya often does. She does the jobs that makes this seem just like a normal place. She does the creepy stuff as well, sure. And she gets her very own room. And we shouldn't downplay how valuable that must be to a girl who lived rough in a war zone for over a year. Remember her thinking the worms were her only friends? Now she's got a space that's hers. There's certainly safer than anywhere she's been since Winterfell, really. She has more than enough food, and she gets to fill this space with her own little treasures, as she calls them. Though we know that will come to a conflict in the battle for her identity later on. You do have to chuckle a bit when she thinks about the source of her meal. She famously kind of looks at it and wonders, hang on, what is actually going on a couple of floors below me? But then you remember what Bran and possibly Rickon have been supposedly up to with their own meals in the north. Of course, Bran was told by Cold Hands that human meat was pork, and that's what I get told here. Maybe a connection there. And no quote. Her bed was stone, and reminded her of Harrenhal, and the bed she'd slept in when scrubbing steps for weeks. 
I mention the stone bed only because the only other stone bed specifically mentioned in the series is that of Varys in the Red Keep, leading many to believe he might actually be a faceless man. Okay, he sneaks around, he's good with switching appearances, we find out he's pretty adept at killing if it needs be, but I personally don't buy it. It would have to be the longest contract ever, and with seemingly no point first off, but the whole idea of the faceless men is that they are no one with no attachment, but Varys most definitely has a very personal goal he's been working towards for ages. Now, okay, you can make an argument he is a former faceless man or a deserter or maybe got trained by them in his youth. Okay, I would perhaps listen to that, but I much prefer the background story of Varys that we all generally accept, of his skills and smarts being self-made from the streets and slums. Let's move back to Aya anyway. Another quote. This one, a bit more emotional. And Needle. Though her duties left her little time for needlework, she practised when she could, duelling with her shadow by the light of a blue candle. One night the waif happened to be passing and saw Aya at a sword play. The girl did not say a word, but the next day, the kindly man walked Aya back to her cell. You need to rid yourself of all this, he said of her treasures. Ah, beloved Needle, is there any sword we hold a higher emotional connection to in the series? You could make a case for ice, okay, but I think we all know it's Needle. The idea of Aya having to leave it behind, especially so soon after regaining it, really tugs at the heartstrings and serves as the emotional crux of this chapter. Already at the opening, we've had Aya thinking back to her former names. She's thought of Hot Pie... She specifically recalled the smell of Winterfell and Hodor and Sansa and Jon, and most especially Nymeria. That's all a beautiful scene that George is including here to raise the stakes of what I will be giving up later on. But the physical manifestation of her Stark connection is Needle. As we've said so many times, it's far more than a sword. It's a connection back to happiness, to childhood, to Jon, to Winterfell and House Stark. This is her lifeline to that world that is so very important. So we can see why she goes down this path of arguing that she should get to keep it, as the kindly man lays out exactly what the House of Black and White asks, and that she is nowhere near paying. And her arguing against this provides us with yet more clues about Aya's eventual possibility for truly becoming no one. You play at being a servant, but in your heart you are a lord's daughter. You have taken other names, but you wore them as lightly as you might wear a gown. Under them was always Aya. That was true then, it's true now, it'll be true in the future. Thankfully, even with the removal of all names instead of the taking of many, Aya remains underneath at all times, as she herself said earlier in the chapter. At baseline, she is the daughter of Lord Eddard Stark, and we really have to be so grateful for that, because I don't know if there would be a sadder ending for any POV if we had been made to witness Aya truly becoming no one and forgetting Aya completely, and just leaving the story behind her. Even though there is a fair argument that that would be the kind of road, considering all the pain she's been through, but it would be tough for us. From this point, you must pay your own way. And the cost is dear. So George is ramping it up now. We really have to start wondering how far is I going to have to go in this chapter. Another sad line. I have a hole where my heart should be, she thought, and nowhere else to go. Yeah, a real sad line. And one that hits of two key parts of why Aya is staying here and pursuing this life. One is the practical. She genuinely doesn't think she has any other options. And besides, this is the most structured and secure her life has been for ages. So she doesn't want to give up. But there's also the emotional. She's still so devastated from Ned's execution, from being so close to the Red Wedding, from everything else laying on top in between. So we can't blame her for wanting the chance to actually leave that behind. She even says in a moment she specifically won't go back to Westeros when the kindly man lays out all these different paths her life could have taken, none of which we want for our dear Aya. Besides, leaving is also akin to failure in this scenario, so Aya, she's built to fight back against that kind of thing. Those who enter his service must give up all that makes them who they are. Can you do that? He cupped her chin and gazed deep into her eyes, so deep it made her shiver. 
No, he said. I do not think you can. Much of this chapter is about the true emotional cost of joining the group, how it's really the highest price you can possibly pay, and the kindly man lays it out for us in detail as Aya teeters on the edge. He almost seems to be trying to save her because he knows how devastating it is to completely lose yourself, but he also claims Aya simply isn't capable. Turns out he makes a pretty good assessment because Aya is not capable of that. We'll learn that with Needle, with Darian, with Raph, and the good old wolf dreams of Nymeria too. Whoever the kindly man was in his previous life, he knows how to work with children now because he roundabout makes Aya agree that she can actually get rid of her treasures. Her childishness comes through quite a lot in this passage with her talk of gowns, her taking things as more literal than they are, exactly as a child really does. And she is unfortunately led in a circle to where she can't argue against getting rid of what she loves. Hence, Aya heads back out into the fresh night air, reflecting on all that has been taken from her, the packs that are gone, not just singular but plural. Everywhere she tried to find a home or family, that's gone. So maybe it's just emotionally easier to abandon that need. The foggy atmosphere of this secret sea hits right on the mark as Aya heads to the water and says goodbye to her trinkets. Though we should note, she only finds it easy because those ones didn't actually belong to Aya in the first place, but salty. When it comes to something that truly is Aya's, the thing that is most Aya's, it's a different story. Here comes the emotional scene and here comes Needle. She gives a valiant effort of persuading herself it's just an inanimate object, one of a thousand, but it doesn't work. And for the second time in the chapter, she's transported home. And I can't resist the whole quote here because it's just too good. She'd been a stupid little girl when John had made it for her. It's just a sword, she said, aloud this time. But it wasn't. Needle was Rob and Bran and Rickon, her mother and her father, even Sansa. Needle was Winterfell's grey walls and the laughter of its people. Needle was the summer snows, old Nan's stories, the heart tree of its red leaves and scary face, the warm, earthy smell of the glass gardens, the sound of the north wind rattling the shutters of her room. Needle was Jon Snow's smile. He used to mess my hair and call me little sister, she remembered, and suddenly there were tears in her eyes. Wow, such great writing from George to submerge us in the feeling of Winterfell. These memories that we even recall from our own original reading of the series, the emotional core that means so much to us. We had Sansa's scene with Snow Winterfell, and this is Aya's own version here. It really is just peak emotion. Hence, when it really comes down to it, Aya can't stop being a Stark. That connection and legacy of Eddard and Catelyn and all children is too strong. So Needle gets stashed away for a rainy day, just in case, because that is not only an incredibly strong link to her family and sense of self in general, but also a link to the one family member she still believes to be alive, and the one that might mean the most, John. On top of that, there's this really cool connection of having lost Needle only to get it back on a thousand to one chance. That has to mean something, and Aya attributes it to the old gods, just further solidifying the connection to home. One day, she whispered to herself, yeah, I just love Aya talking to Needle as she hides it away. It's peak emotion again. The throwing away of her stuff is enough to get the kindly man to put her on the next level of faceless man acceptance. So he either isn't all-powerful enough to see her hide Needle, or secretly he doesn't care. It's hard to tell for this guy. Either way, he launches into the larger history of the faceless men and how they predate Bravos entirely, instead giving us our best ever look into ancient Valeria and the literal hell on earth it was for these poor slaves. So that's a crossover of storylines we probably weren't expecting. Suddenly we're merging more into the Targaryen slash Danny territory and the ancient mysteries of the world, as well as some Dance Tyrion, as we begin to ponder yet more, um, again, mysteries and what the Valerians are really up to. There's a mention of sorcery which makes you think there is something with much deeper levels than anything we're aware of so far. It starts running many lines to the origins of dragons and the such. It's perhaps our best world bidding of ancient Essos we've had yet, and we've had plenty. 
Shout out to the fireworms, by the way. They get a mention here. On initial reading, we probably skipped over that part, to be honest, but we've all paid way more attention now with Red Fire and Blood and seen what happened to poor area Targaryen, if you believe, as I do, fireworms are what killed her. The story of the Faces Men history really does open us into some larger territory theory-wise. Perhaps the most prominent is the possibility that they brought about the Doom, either as some sort of vengeance against Valeria, or to wipe dragons from the earth, or merely because they were paid, who knows. This is big idea stuff and we really have no clue. But if we allow our minds to include the mere possibility they could induce such a world-altering event, then it really has us reframe what might be going on at the Citadel from our prologue. Are we really going to see another similar cataclysm to fight off Danny's dragons? Although logic would dictate that as silly, considering there were more than four, three dragons in Westeros for over a century and they supposedly made no move. Or are they preparing something to deal with the others? Maybe even Euron's Krakens? Or is it just they want to wipe out magic again? The mind kind of boggles. It's a pretty fitting story for Aya specifically to hear. She's already seen the abuse of the lower classes by the uppers. Slaves perished by the score, but their masters did not care. That sticks out as a good comparison to what we've seen already from the War of the Five Kings and the huge gap between classes. Aya's straight up seen slavery back to her Harren Hall slash Gregor Clegane days. So she knows all about this stuff, or it's another cross with our present day themes of slavery with Danny and the abusive upper classes that we've seen kind of with everyone. This terrible oppression, as we've seen in so many stories, produces the one who fights against it in this mysterious, original faceless man. Lest we forget, I think a certain take on the group's name is that they are made up of all people, but usually the common, and certainly this original one represented that subset of people. They are the faceless people. They are no one. This first man didn't revel in the generic cook up a huge revolt and lead the oppressed into battle. Instead, he offered them the gift of death after realising all people of all backgrounds are united by this ultimate force, which hooks both Aya and us right into the story. Aya, being accustomed to the stories of old Nan, takes offence at the slaves dying instead of the evil masters. But we must note, the kindly man doesn't say he didn't kill the masters. Let's have a quote here. Aya drew back from him. He killed the slave? That did not sound right. He should have killed the masters. He would bring the gift to them as well. But that is a tale for another day. One best shared for no one. So we've got another possibility for wordplay games there. You could easily convince me he is saying you only get to find out when you're a proper member of the Order. It also leads to the kindly man talking about how they don't get to choose. They are merely instruments. Which opens us up to criticise the Facements men a bit as, yeah, as a bit bullshit as we mentioned earlier. They get paid to do it so okay sure they aren't choosing but that just means whoever has the most money gets to do the choosing that is supposedly reserved for a god alone. What it actually says is never kill for free or for yourself. That is their actual philosophy. The kindly man finishes the story by asking his eternal question. Who are you? And Aya is fed up of hearing it. Instead wanting to know how he always knows the truth. That's just part of her nature. She's an inquisitive girl, always asking and wanting to learn from the people she meets. It just so happens the subject nature is really different this time. But Aya doesn't just want a skill, as she tells us here. She would be no one if that was what it took. No one had no holes inside her. So that is our really largest supporting evidence for Aya just wanting to leave the pain behind. Another quote. Then you can learn to see a lie. And once you do, no secret will be safe from you. Considering the books we're reading... Even the idea of such a power gets us salivating, doesn't it? Imagine Aya actually having that ability. From there, Aya enters novice level, officially enters into the House of Black and White. She even gets a robe that says so, and her first task is being a study partner with the mysterious Waif, as she learns Bravosi while teaching the common tongue, a task she's not too chuffed about. That makes sense for Aya, she's not the most patient of folks, but she does make progress eventually. That transforms into the Lion Game, which obviously holds some pretty key features for a faceless man student. And it's here we learn some secrets about the waif. She gave him all she was, all she ever might have been, 
all the lives that were within her. The waif is supposedly 36, old enough to be Aya's parent, but still looks like a little girl. So now we're really into the magical. The faceless men aren't kidding. They really can change this type of thing. Is she wearing a face, we have to think, the first time around? Has she been made younger or frozen in time like this? Well, the kind of man is again laying out the cost that Aya could have to pay. But he also points out poisons made the waif this way. So now we have to wonder, is she being punished or failed in some way? Especially given how Aya finishes this book herself. We'll get much more of the waif's history later on. And rereaders will know it's no punishment at all. Not from the faceless man, at least. But we'll also know the story still winds up with the same conclusion. The faceless men don't mess around. Aya bears witness to more comings and goings of the house, including these folk you might assume are the assassins or priests or whatever you want to call them. Even while standing there attendant, as she's already learned to do, she's proving she has no hope of forgetting Aya Stark. She's referencing Syria, Rus, and she dreams of Nymeria, the ultimate inescapable. Speaking of both the past and of priests, has Aya retracing her steps all the way to Jack and Agar, prompting her to find out what his connection to all this was. Who, he said, all innocence? Jack and Agar, he gave me the iron coin. I know no one by this name, child. And that will get us all the more interesting when we include the possibility that Jacqueline slash that alchemist might be acting rogue and away from the main faceless man orders. Or is that common? Is Jacqueline just a freelancer? Are there different or rogue subsets? Even to think about that, we have to accept that A, the alchemist does equal Jacqueline, and B, the kind of man is actually telling the truth. Because he could easily be making one of his little wordplay games about how he doesn't know the name Jacqueline Agar because he only knows no one. It's all very frustrating. In the case of Jacqueline's face-changing abilities, the kindly man references glamours and the reality of using tricks over spells wherever possible, which relates incredibly strongly to everything we already know of Melisandre and will find out in her single dance chapter. This chapter ends with Aya being given her first proper mission, the acceleration to yet another level of being a faceless man. This time, she's headed out into the city, not even to do anything obviously specific just yet she is to practice being someone else and thereby no one and get acclimated with her new city thus she has to choose a name she half combines the life she lived before as an orphan in king's landing more interestingly she chooses the name cat just as her sister chose elaine before her and what is the name of this ship nymeria she said at once she will never leave herself behind forget the fact that the stark and faceless men philosophies on death are pretty incompatible think about that a minute forget the pragmatics and logistics of needing to be here or even how badly she wants vengeance aya can't stop being aya and let us all give thanks for that and just to hammer that point home we see aya head out into the city finally armed with a mission a purpose new skills a relatively safe arena in which to act it's definitely not the riverlands even the feeling of having a pack kind of so george wonderfully links it back to the beginning of the chapter showing us aya believes this to just being the first of many steps to revenge but also includes the word happy with aya which is so very very rare that makes us glad in the instant because aya gets so few of these moments but we have to remember how shadow line this sunny moment is for now let's revel here's the quote so Gregor, she chanted, as she crossed a stone bridge, supported by four arches. From the centre of its span, she could see the mass of ships in the Ragman's Harbour. Dunson, Raph the Sweeting, Sir Erlen, Sir Merin, Queen Cersei. Rain began to fall. Aya turned her face up to let the raindrops wash over her cheeks. So happy she could dance. Valamagulis, she said. Valamagulis, Valamagulis. Ah, uh, Aya. Okay, that is Aya's chapter, and we're going to leave it there because, well, it's running long, my voice is going, and like I say, it's already late, and I want to get to you quick as possible. Very, very quickly here, let's do next week's chapters. We'll have Elaine 1, or Sansa 2 if you want to be technical, Cersei 5, Brienne 5, and Sam 3. So that is to come not too far in the future, you'll get that soon. Again, I thank you for your patience and uh, for all of you sending nice messages about our anniversary, and we will speak to you again soon. See you later, everybody.